this morning. Yes, some of us only a couple. Turn to the Word and have a lesson for us as the adults in the room. Apologizing yet again to the uh, singers. I may get your words out of what I have yours today, Amy. Your uh, music thing is what I'm saying. And why are you playing with me? And uh, we'll dive right in. Father, I thank you so much today for. Your word. We are grateful that you have given us the words of eternal life and that you've blessed it with us in a library form. That we can open up and see what all the books that you intended for us to live by have to say about how we should work with you and live. We ask you, God, today that you would lead us in your teaching time and help us to. Uh, get a better grasp on what you're calling us to uh, as we ourselves listen to you and speak your word and set our hearts to do. We ask this Holy Spirit in uh, the name of Jesus, but trusting that you are our teacher. We've been told in the word that the Holy Spirit teaches us, guides us, illuminates us, convicts us, and wakes us. So we ask the Holy Spirit to be welcome today to the word. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, here's the thing. I, I, as a kid, just wanted to let you guys know, I watched a whole lot of television. And there was one show that probably made, like, the biggest impact on me as a kid. And this is, I'm not uh, exaggerating this at all. It's a show called Reading Rainbow. I grew up with that. Yeah. I grew up with Reading Rainbow. I don't know if I missed an episode. Exactly. I, I don't know if I missed an episode of Reading Rainbow. I, this week, in preparation for the message, because I decided I wanted to bring some of that to uh, you guys as I was thinking about it myself, I looked and it was something that was uh, established in the fall of 1982. I was born in the summer of 1982. I think I watched all of it. Reading Rainbow, in, in the, 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 for me, the climactic point every single week was this moment, where the host would come on and you might see something of an interesting fact, or you would see an interesting item, uh, and then all of a sudden he would just say, this came to be in some amazing way, and it was like, what? I watched one this week that it was a seat sitting next to him. And he had some wool in his hands that had just been seared, and then he pointed over at a nice, beautiful red blanket and said, "This entire blanket was made with these two handfuls of wool." And it's like, you're right. I'm looking at this thing, and I mean, he goes through and he says, "I haven't done." But he says that, and there's always this pause. And if you watched it like me, what you remember is he would say. But you don't have to take my word for it. Remember that? I'm dating myself, but some of y'all, all right, some of y'all really. But you don't have to take my word for it. It was every week at that time that I had uh, the, the privilege of being watching 
some uh, reading of a story or unfolding of a fact. And reading Rainbow cultivated in my heart a love for learning, a lifelong commitment to being a learner, even before I was a Christian. And I'll be honest with you that I would say that I'm not a part of that. 30% of Americans who say they did not read one book in 2020, right? Well, I'm the opposite of that. Every week, I'm reading two or three books, and I'm studying 10 or something more. I, I love to do that. Sometimes I need to be pulled out of doing that, all right? And here's the thing. My hope today, though, is even by just introducing you to that principle, I don't have to take my word for it, and stimulating some of your memory and some of your thoughts about reading Rainbow, that I could stimulate you to a greater commitment to be a lifelong learner as well. And even being a reader, being the one who goes to the book, just to enjoy it. Last week we started in our devoted series, and we wanted to say, and I think it was pretty clear that. The message to us is to be devoted to Christ first and foremost, right? And in devoting ourselves to Christ, we are repenting and turning back towards God, and then we see what actually happens. A natural progression is all of these uh, these vital things come up, these essentials. In, in, in one way, the first four principles that you find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, in some ways, it's like the vital signs of the church. Or these are the essential practices of the church. And we're just going to take them one by one throughout the summer. And so today, it's already been introduced to us. It's been read and it's also been taught to the kids. But we're going to look at the first essential practice of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I heard them then, and I love that. I love that. Teaching is at the heart of our mission. The great commission that was given to the church has teaching at the very center of it. And the call of all of us to be disciple makers that we find in places like Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 that basically says, the things that you've heard from me, I want you to teach to others who will be able to also then teach to others. Four generations of teaching is at the center of what it means to be a disciple. Take what you've learned by teaching and give it to other people who will also be willing and able to teach others. All at the heart of what it means to be a disciple maker. And newsflash, we've been called here not because we just wanted to have a great time in a ballroom. We've been called here because we want to remind you that as individual disciples, you have a call to be a disciple maker. God has called us to be devoted to Him, and in doing that, we corporately devote ourselves to these things. So plainly, teaching is central to the church. If you don't get anything else out of the day, write that down, take a note on that. It's central to the church. Teaching is the pipeline for the Word of God, right? The words of life, the gospel, God's practical instruction that has been given to us. Teaching is what gets us there. And in this context, what we see is the apostles' teaching is what actually delivers that to us. If we were to remove the apostles' teaching from the church, everything will fall flat. One apostle, Paul, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He wouldn't even have the majority of the New Testament teaching if he didn't have Paul's teaching. 
And John wrote three more epistles and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Take all that out. Take away the apostles' teaching that is the gospels. And what do you actually have? Everything falls flat. Without the apostles' teaching, the church is deflated, severely. And the truth is, is that when we don't devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, everything else loses its meaning. If we did everything else well, if we turn the lights on today, for those of you who wish that the lights were on, if I had the verses on the screen this morning and they weren't late to get to the soundboard, if we sang all of your favorite songs, if we had really polished and really theatrical and entertaining services and gatherings, but we weren't devoted to the teaching and we had no teaching, all that other stuff is worthless. Which is why we can do without all that other stuff as long as the word is here. Seamless services, poverty alleviation efforts, mercy ministries, outreach to the homeless, it doesn't matter. All of the top notch programming that we could have loses all of its value without the apostles. I would make the argument that that's the reason why it's the first thing known. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Before it says to the fellowship, to prayers, it's the breaking of bread. The very first thing, the paramount thing, the thing that I want you to walk away with is a love and an affection for the apostles' teaching. In order to do that, we've got to answer three questions. What is it? Why should we be devoted to it? How are we going to do that? But why should we do that? Let's do some Bible study. What is the apostles' teaching? If you think back to Jesus in his life, what is the one primary thing that you saw him doing in the three years of his adult ministry? Somebody say it right where you are. Teaching. Jesus taught a lot. Jesus taught a lot. And you know what? There were a lot of other people who also taught a lot. They were rabbis, they were Pharisees, they were teachers of the law. Sometimes the Bible says lawyers, not talking about the lawyers that you and I have been. Oh, yeah, we can say it's like you and I avoid. <laughs> right? It's talking about those who are the teachers of the law. Oh, sorry, Christian. <laughs> but Jesus taught a lot, and the people who often heard them teach, they were used to hearing teaching. But when Jesus came along, the carpenters from Nazareth, they were astonished every time. Why were they astonished? Not because he talked so well and was so eloquent or so entertaining, but because he taught with divine authority. Every time Jesus taught, he taught authoritatively. Take Mark chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. You can turn with me if you have it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, verse 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, speaking about Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. If I ask for a scribe right now, 
Hey, that, that, that might be wonderful to have somebody come up and say, hey, everything you said, I'm going to write it down. Just please that. As an aside, I'm going to Spurgeon and some of his biographies. They said Spurgeon was not the greatest preacher. He didn't preach the most. But there was a 17-year-old boy who came and heard him one day and said, hey, man, I want to write all this down. That's what we want Spurgeon to do. Those people who preach way more and even better than his day. Can you imagine? So if anybody wants to be a spy, he didn't teach like the scouts. He wasn't just there writing down what he had heard. He taught authoritatively, and so they were marveling at that. They were astonished. Who are you? How in the world do you know these things? How can you say such a thing? All those teachers around, but Jesus comes and he's unique because his teaching is authoritative. It wasn't just common sense. It was definitive. It was trustworthy. It was reliable. Turn to John chapter 7 really quickly. John 7. In verse, uh, we'll do verses 14 to 17. It says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, said, How is it that this man has learned <laughs> when he's never studied? You guys hear that? The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learned when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine. But his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you teach the law. How do you seek to kill me to go down and say? Jesus wanted his followers, those who were with him as he was being antagonized, to know that this was divinely authorized teaching. This is the teaching from God. I'm not doing my own will. I'm about my father's business. I'm speaking with authority because I'm speaking on behalf of someone. Namely, I'm speaking on behalf of God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven, heaven and earth. This is authoritative teaching. This is the teaching. That's how Jesus came on the scene. This is what he thought and believed about the things that he said. And this is what was recognizable when people came in contact with his teaching. Even those who were standing in opposition to the fight, they need to study. Matthew 28, 18 and 20, you guys know that Jesus commissioned us, right? He commissioned his disciples at that time, and he got so he made them into apostles. And making them apostles meant that he was sending them out, and he was giving them something. Well, guess what that was? He gave them authority. The central theme of their sickness was authority. Listen to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. He says, Go therefore. What he's saying is, Go with that authority. I have all authority. And now I'm sending you out in the same authority. 
And you know what I want you to do with that authority? Teach. I want you to teach. Don't make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. The Great Commission was based squarely on Jesus' authority and teaching essential to them being those who would be sent as apostles to do the same. The early church wasn't devoted to the apostles' teaching just because the apostles were so dynamic and so charismatic and so, again, entertaining. No, it was because their teaching was divinely authoritative. Jesus came and he taught with authority. The reason he taught with authority is because he taught what God said and meant. And when Jesus sent his disciples into the world, he gave them authority to go and teach that and that alone. You guys following me? I'm so glad because sometimes I get preaching and I go through all of those verses without saying them. And I told Barry and Jeff this week, that's what I need to say. Just slow down and let everybody read it this way. The apostles' teaching, I want to define it this way. If you're taking notes, write this down. I think it's a pretty good definition. Not because I wrote it, but because I wrote it. Here's what the apostles' teaching was. The authoritative teaching on how all of God's plan Revealed in Scripture finds its fulfillment in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus. I'm not even finished. <laughs> My definitions are strong. I'm going to make sure every word means something. Keep going. And how it impacts our lives now and forever. All right, now I'll repeat it again. The authoritative teaching on how all of God's plan revealed in Scripture finds its fulfillment in life or in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus, and how it impacts our lives now and forever. You could say the authoritative teaching on how all of God's plan is fulfilled in Jesus. It's the same thing. And I don't want us to miss that each one of those things matter. At the time, the apostles' teaching was all verbal. And the reason why you knew that what they were saying was right was because they had seen, they had witnessed, they had walked with, and they were recounting not their own words. They're like, yo, Jesus said this, Jesus said that, he said this, he said that. This is what that really means. I always thought it meant something else. It was all verbal. They were devoted to it. They had walked with him, and now they were doing all kinds of miraculous signs, the apostles were, even that they, you saw what? People start speaking in languages that they never even learned. And 3,000 people get saved because they're like, how are these individuals from right around here talking my language from way over there? I'm not even sure you know, from the north. African continent, uh, continent of Africa, North America, 
work as in you know region, or I'm from way out here. This how are they speaking? They're saying things that they can keep in mind. The spirit of God gave them that utterance to do what? To confirm that their message was authentic. So that as they were speaking and teaching, it would make sense to go and to devote yourself to that teaching. Now that they're saying, but Christ, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And he's ascended to heaven and he's coming back one day for all who believe in him. You don't believe me? You ain't walked all your life. Get up. Check your map. We're running out of here. That's why God did all these miraculous signs for them. It was to authenticate for the people that their teaching was authoritative. And over time, their verbal teaching came to be known to you and I as the Gospels. The epistles, which are the letters to the various churches. And even the revelation of Jesus Christ, otherwise known as the New Testament. So now, when we look and we have the New Testament, we actually have the apostles' teaching. So we too devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the authoritative teaching, Jesus' teaching, God's teaching. When we devote ourselves to the Word, to Scripture, to what we learn from the Gospels as we read the epistles to the letters and even read prophetic uh, uh, things concerning the future in the Revelation, what we have is we have the authoritative teaching. That's the reason why it's such a big deal. I hope y'all follow me. We don't have Jesus. We don't have the apostles. I'm not an apostle. We don't have them with us today. But we do have their teaching. Praise God for that. We can be, and we ought to be still, devoted to it. That's our next question. We got their teaching. The question is, how or what is devotion to it? Let me say a couple things about the teaching. I'll just say these things to you. In Second Timothy chapter three, Paul's writing letter to Timothy. He says, "You, however, have followed my teaching, and you followed my conduct." You followed my aim in life, and my faith, and my patience, and my love, and my steadfastness. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Then he goes on and says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That was one of the nicer things that Paul said. Paul said some pretty hard to hear things throughout the New Testament. For those of you who have read, you know what I'm talking about. Listen to what Peter said about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own description or destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. You know what's key for me there? The rest of the scriptures. That teaches me 
that Peter and Paul knew that what they were writing at the time was on par with Old Testament scripture. What, what if I had some chronicles uh, of Narnia, you know, book, or, you know, I don't know. What are some of those? Forget it. I read those books. But you know those novels and series and series, right? And it's like, kind of, you kind of know who's the hero, you know, who's the villain, you know, all that, right? If I came up here and I was a fan, man, I was reading this, and this happened, blah, blah, blah. It's like it happens in the rest of it. Just like it is in the rest of it. Did you have any question as to whether or not, oh, but is this one really fun to see? Right. That's what people really need. If this is true, then we need to definitely devote ourselves to the Word of God in new and in fresh ways, particularly your New Testament. This is really just a commentary on the Old Testament to help you understand what the whole grand story of what God has been doing in Jesus Christ. We need to devote ourselves to their teaching. Here's what devotion is. That's our second question. The word in our text for devotion could have been translated this way. Maybe some of your Bibles say giving steadfast and full attention to something. When you give steadfast and full attention to something, when you do that continually, that's when you're devoted. It's to continue to do something with an intense effort, even despite difficulty or trial. It carries the idea of an ongoing commitment of yourself, even if it's going to cost you something. That's what it means to be devoted. This is the opposite, y'all, of inconsistent. It's the polar opposite. I'm talking diametrically opposed, or opposed to inconsistent. This is why we're so Bible-centered in both of our churches. We don't worship the Bible, but we do recognize that it's the only source for God's authoritative teaching, which comes to us and it culminates and it uh, climaxes in Jesus Christ. Remember, it's like I said from last week, true devotion is first devotion to Christ even before Christian things. We're devoted to Christ. So we believe this thing. They were repenting towards God and placed all their faith in Christ in him, uh, in him and on Him alone first. In our prep time uh, a month ago together, Bert and uh, Josh and I liked this quote from Andrew Wilson. He said, I don't trust Jesus because I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible because I trust Jesus. I don't trust Jesus because I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible because I trust Jesus. Because Jesus came and he had authoritative teaching, which is recorded for us in the scripture. But even before we had the second half, he was already unfolding. And it was recognizable to those who were with him that this is really what it is. And so we are called to be devoted to it, which just means we're going to be consistent with it. I don't need to have three ways and four ways for you to do this out of the third today. I just want to challenge you. Let's be consistent. Let's be steadfast. Let's be continual in our devotion and our going to it. For some of us, that's that is the deal. You're ready to go. You feel like that's it. For others of us, 
influence their lives. Instead of giving you more deep theology on this, I'll say, come talk to any of your leaders if you have a desire to get into it. Now, I want to talk more about the apologetic and all that is. Uh, I'm not going to try to convince you, but I will challenge you. Okay? Here's a challenge. Read it for yourself. LeVar Burton, that's the reading rainbow guy, he has a quote. He says, if you're a reader for life, then you're a learner for life. And if you're a learner for life, you're the definition of what I consider to be a dangerous individual, which is somebody who doesn't have to take anybody's word for it. I want more dangerous individuals, and sadly, I know that we need more dangerous individuals. Why sadly? Well, because only one in ten Americans believe the Bible contains the word of God. Only three in ten church going say they read it regularly. Here's a bigger number for us. Six in ten professing Christians say as a book written by men, the Bible should not be taken literally. Any more dangerous. That's dangerous, but that's, that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. From the beginning of time, the hardest thing for humanity to do is believe and trust God's Word and His authority. That's what happened in the garden, y'all. Adam and Eve had to take God's Word. They had to take counsel from Him. They always had done that. They walked with Him. And it was when the serpent came, Satan came, and twisted them, that that caused them to do what? It's hard for us to obey others or to even let alone obey a sovereign God with a moral code. In our day, this comes into play when you see that most people, nine out of ten Americans, will reject the Bible's relevance for everyday life. Okay? Rejecting it all out. It's no wonder then that we have very few neighbors, friends, family members who have a rule of life that roots them in what? Rhythms of scripture reading and devotion to it and meditation and prayer of it. No. As a culture, we would rather just go with Satan. Did God really say? To be sure, as a culture, especially the American culture, we do want to get work. We love a good pithy saying. We love our little quips and proverbs. A good caption is extremely valuable in our culture, especially if it fits in our own for the day. It's not that we don't want some wisdom. The main issue is authority. So what do we do? Just like the generations before us that we talked about last week. We pursue the kingdom without the king. How do you pursue the kingdom without the king when it comes to rejecting the Bible and authority and the word but still looking for wisdom? Well, follow my traditions. I follow my religion. I'm not about religion. I'm anti-religious. I have this DIY theology that has me at the center. Or I go to the blog post. This is where I get my news from. I don't know about where you get your news from. Oh, I get podcasts. Oh, no, I'm about politics. That's how you pursue everything other than the king himself as it relates to the word. Our main issue is authority. Listen to N.T. Wright. He says, where there's no attention given the biblical teaching and to constant lifelong learning, people quickly revert to a worldview 
surrounding culture may end up with their minds being shaped by whichever social cultures are most persuasive at the time. The Jews are somewhere around as a pale influence or as a memory. Deeper than that, y'all, I think we want to disagree with what the word says because oftentimes we have experiences or we have some kind of desire and we ask it. The Bible says something and we disagree about what it says. I think that's somewhat okay because we're talking to individuals, right? I think it's okay to be like real about that. But I think we also have to be real about the why. If, if we disagree with what the Bible says, it has to be with one or two reasons. Something is wrong and God is at fault. Or something is wrong and I am at fault. Those are our two options. Those are our two options. And we should definitely leave the benefit of doubt with the Word of God, right? Because even when I read the New Testament, there's numerous misunderstandings, and even when I read the Old Testament, there's misunderstandings all over the Word of God. Notice I didn't say mistakes. But there's misunderstandings all over the Word of God. And Jesus seems to hold his hearers accountable for every one of them. Listen to the way that he responds when there's a misunderstanding of what the Scriptures or he himself teaches. These are words of Jesus that you'll appear read if you just flip through the Gospels. Are you still so dull? Do you still not understand? How can you not see that? Well, this week, Jeff brought to us John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus turns to his disciples after seeing a Samaritan woman start bringing in the harvest. He says, open your blind eyes and look around you. How slow are you to believe? He says things like, or the Bible tells us things like seeing their hypocrisy. He said this. He flat out said at times, you don't know what you're saying. Or from the beginning of time, it was not so. Or it's because of the hardness of your heart that you believe it that way. He even told Peter one time, get behind me, Satan. So every time there was a misunderstanding of what's going on, the authority is straight. The word is true. The misunderstanding of the fault is because I just don't get it. I think we can be okay with that, but we want to stop saying that it's not true. Jesus said, we have a hard time recognizing that the scriptures are literally about Jesus and God's purpose for the nations through them, and not about me. And so that's where things get lost. And so we just want to call it to the side. Not unlike Jesus, his first hearers, when they recited the stories, and they sang the songs, and they remembered all the prophecies, they had a hard time keeping Christ at the center. And I think that's where I want to land the Why should we devote ourselves? It's because we need Christ at the center of our lives. We need everything to end on him. The God's story of redemption culminates in climaxes in Christ. Said negatively, what goes wrong when we don't have Jesus and God's purpose for the end of the center? Confusion. Confusion comes about, and you know what? Confusion is most of the time what leads to deception. Satan loves to confuse you and to deceive you into starting your own teaching. This lies 95% true. Or pride and individualism. I become the main focus of the Psalms or Luke or Romans rather than God, right? Or I can believe it's all about me rather than about them and about, you know, then about us. So what? 
David and Goliath's story becomes about how I can slay my giants. Not about how David slew his and Israel's and how Jesus, the true David, slays his. It becomes all about me. I put myself in the sixth row. So what happens when we're not devoted to scripture? We kind of just go to it for a little bit. Greed comes about, right? I started assuming that the blessings that are spoken of uh, throughout the Bible have their end in me and my enjoyment rather than the purposes of God for the nations, which I think is where a lot of functional prosperity gospel comes from. You hear something like what Jamie and uh, Sherry said at the close of our gathering last week about the blessing of trust and obedience of your finances, and then you just like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. God's like a genie in the back. James says that we do that because we walk things the wrong way. We ask to spend them on our passion. Greed comes about because we forget to put the word in its proper place. Emptiness, I could go on and on, but I want to live in front of your doubt. Then doubt comes about when the word of God is not at the center of your life. The word being Jesus and devotion to the scripture. Doubt comes about, and it's cool again to be honest about why we're doubting. So many of us holding a certain conviction that say Jesus is the only way. Or holding some kind of a sexual ethic in this culture costs me something. A lot of times the reason why we doubt is not because we don't believe it's true, but because if I believe that's true, that means something for some of the people that I love. And that means something about my relationship with them. And so we can say, I, I don't know about that. Andrew Wilson wrote a book called Unbreakable, what the Son of God said about the Word of God. And he says this, In my experience, lots of Christians from evangelical churches are worried about what the Bible says about a topic, not because they've come across a problem with the text. Like Jesus never said that, or Paul never meant that. No, it's because they know people for whom what the Bible does say can be painful. History is much more about the cost of discipleship than historical argument. Following Jesus is a death to self, a life of tribulation and difficulty and persecution, which will sometimes mean your loved ones will abandon you or even attack you. Let's be real. A lot of times we become more skeptical about what the Word of God says because we know what that means. And hey, kudos to you and I. We counted the cost. That's what we've been called to do as disciples. Count the cost to be my disciples. But in counting the cost, you have to realize that I don't get to twist it. And this is what the whole thing is about. Devotion. It's about discipleship. If no one's ever defined for you what discipleship is, I got another one for you. Definition, write it down. Discipleship, real simple. Being with, to learn from, and become like Jesus along with others, no matter the cost. This whole thing, when we talk about devotion, is about discipleship. Being with, to become like Jesus. So being with Him. Can't be with Him because He ain't here in flesh and blood, but man, thanks God for His word. Being with Jesus, I can't be in with him here in Lord. Praise God for his body. So being with him so that I can become like him, right? Along with others, 
That's what discipleship is all about. And no matter the cost is important. I'll close with the last quote. Dallas Willard, in great omission, returning Jesus' essential teachings on discipleship, says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who identify as Christians, whether by profession or by culture, will become disciples. The greatest problem facing the church and the world today is whether or not Christians will become disciples. Students, learning from him how to live like him and to bring the kingdom to the world. I want to submit to you that in order to do that, we must take our cue from the rainbow and devote ourselves to reading. Devote ourselves. And don't just take my word for it. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You may want to turn there for yourself so that you can see these words. John 5, 39 and 40. These are the words of Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You don't worship the Bible. You worship Jesus. So we believe the Bible. John 17 and verse 3 says, this is eternal life. Now, mind you. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who've been memorizing this since five years old in chapter five. And he basically said, yeah, you've been searching it and trying to worship it. But it's telling you about me and you refuse to come to me. And so you don't have eternal life. Now when Jesus goes in John 17, he's praying to the Father in the garden. This is what he says, verse three. This is eternal life, that they know you, speaking of God the Father, and that they know you Right? But they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. And knowledge comes through learning. Can I rest my case today? Knowledge comes through learning. Learning most time by reading. And reading the fabric, hearing from others. That's what God wants from us. So to close, I'll start uh, with a prayer that comes from what the big idea from today is. Essentially, be. God, the goal of devoting ourselves to knowing the scriptures isn't just an increase in knowledge. It's knowing you and knowing your son, Jesus, which we just learned is the essence of eternal life. Would you help us to steadfastly, continually give ourselves to a consistent intake of your word? We would learn and that it would then help us to live in light of your grand plan for the nations that come together in Christ and Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that as our worship continues to even not see, in so much as it is characterized by the word, that it would be more of an opportunity for us to get to know you and to be known by you and we have eternal life. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.